0: Remember, the uh, book is at the back, and for those of you that are joining us uh, by live stream, uh, you can check that book out at uh, notbyworks.org. It's basically uh, you know, 350 pages of the same content we've been covering in detail. Uh, Tuesday's podcast, this week, I've heard talked to several of you already this morning about this and gotten an email about it, um, that it was uh, helpful, and it was on how should Christians respond to suffering? Uh, How Should Christians Respond to Suffering? And so that was uh, basically a one-hour, 45-minute or so theology of suffering according to God's Word. And uh, so if you've not listened to that, I encourage you to go back and check that out. And of course, uh, we've been having to do the midweek Bible study by live stream only, which has been a little discouraging because I really enjoy the interaction here uh, at the church. But hopefully, according to the forecast, this week's going to be good weather, warm weather melt all the snow, and we can get back together again and bring your questions. Uh, you know, since we haven't met in person for a couple of weeks, uh, hopefully you have some questions, and we'll review and rehash some of the stuff we've talked about in terms of biblical genre and figures of speech and those types of things, Pro- Bible prophecy, how to interpret Bible prophecy, and, uh, and we'll uh, kind of have some discussion. Uh, but uh, we're going to continue our look at the second coming uh, today. And if you remember, uh, the uh, in a big picture here, we're looking at the tail end of the end times. So the end times, of course, refers to all of the unfulfilled prophecy in Scripture that is yet future. It starts with the rapture and goes all the way through the eternal state to the new heavens and the new earth. And as we've said many times, the Bible has quite a bit to say about that. A uh, lot of details, and you, this chart certainly doesn't even reflect... Uh, comprehensively all of the information that the Bible has to say about the end times. But it touches on uh, the biggies, uh, the r- uh, rise of the Antichrist, the signing of the peace treaty, the reign of terror, the seven-year tribulation where the Antichrist rules the world, uh, the, all that takes place during that tribulation. And then as we've been focused on the last few weeks, <clears throat> the return of our Lord as promised to establish the long-awaited uh, kingdom. Uh, So we talked about seven reasons uh, for Christ's second coming and uh, these are there there are more but these are seven ones that sort of jump off the page uh, in my mind and then last week we looked at uh, the first of several key passages on the second coming and at the top of anyone's list uh, ought to be Revelation uh, chapter 19 uh, verses 11 to 16. We have a few more that we want to look at, but before we get to that, which we'll probably do next week, I want to talk again about the differences between Israel and the church. So we had talked about previously last week the differences between the second coming and the rapture, and we compared Scripture with Scripture and demonstrated that there's absolutely no way that the event spoken of in in first Thess 4 and the event spoken of in Revelation 19 can be the same event. No way, not not possible for anyone who handles the Bible correctly. It's a literal, if you take it in its literal, grammatical, historical uh, setting, it's got to be two different events, and that's because it is. Now, of course, we, get to, we come to that conclusion not only based on the immediate context, but based on a broader understanding of God's plan of the ages uh, in Scripture. So if you think about uh, the big picture in terms of, a dispensational overview of scripture remember dispensationalism is a biblical term or dispensation is and dispensational theology is based upon a literal grammatical historical approach to scripture understanding the words in their plain normal meaning Uh, dispensationalism is not about time periods right a lot of people mistakenly you say define dispensationalism oh isn't that that theology that breaks up history into different time periods no That's not what dispensationalism is. Dispensationalism is a hermeneutic. It's a way to study the Bible. The outcome or the outgrowth of that approach to Scripture leads you to recognize that through the ages, God has interacted with mankind differently. And there's no passage that says, Thus saith the Lord. These are the seven dispensations. Different dispensational scholars will kind of break it up differently. But the point is to recognize that clearly in the progress of revelation as time goes on God is revealing more to mankind and expecting different things from mankind not as a means of salvation salvation is always by grace through faith since time began from the garden forward mankind can only be saved one way by trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation Um, that's the gospel in the present age Uh, but clearly if you think about God's plan of the ages, God interacted differently, let's say, with Noah uh, than he does with us. I mean, that's self-evident, right? Uh, We have the whole word of God, the complete counsel of God. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit and so forth. But what I want you to focus in on on this chart is Numbers 5 and 6, where number 5 was the age of Israel, you might say, uh, when Israel was God's chosen nation, still is God's chosen nation, but they were center stage at that time. And they were under the law. But uh, when Christ came and the church was established, uh, the law was set aside. We're no longer under that tutor, Paul tells us in Galatians 3. We're, We're led by the law written on our hearts, which is the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is unique to this age. No other age, in any of those that you see there on the screen, not the age of innocence, conscience, human government, promise, or law, did God's people universally have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We do. Uh, it's called the last days in Scripture because it's the final age prior to the kingdom, as you see represented on that uh, chart. The Bible refers to it several times as the last days, the age in which we live today, or the last hour. John uses that term. So uh, then you see there'll be a transition time between the church age, when the church is raptured, and the start of the kingdom, and that's uh, the final Uh, 70th week of Daniel that final seven year uh, period that uh, Daniel predicted uh, that kind of completes that 490 year prophecy I don't know if I have that chart on here Uh, yeah so if you remember God gave Daniel uh, a 490 year plan uh, of which 483 years have already occurred in the past but that final seven years has not and so that seven year period is not, technically speaking, a dispensation of its own, at least not as I understand it. Uh, uh, it's a transition between the church age and the kingdom age, and that's why I represented it that way on the chart. Now, I wouldn't get hung up about that. Some I have some good friends that are uh, great uh, Bible uh, uh, interpreters, and they tend to designate the tribulation as its own dispensation. Um, I'm not sure I can make that case biblically. I don't think there's uh you know any distinctly new way in which man interacts with god during the tribulation there's certainly a lot of new and unprecedented things happening on earth but uh, god is still calling people to salvation and uh still you're still coming to god through prayer and those types of things there's not uh nothing uh particularly unique about it but i wouldn't die on that hill uh so maybe we we add an eighth dispensation or some people have nine but big picture you just need to understand that God is working out his plan of the ages that will culminate in the kingdom. That's where it's all headed. It's heading to a kingdom age uh, someday. So, because of that, we see a distinction between the rapture and the second coming. And when you understand God's dis- this distinct difference between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church, then you understand that he's you know that, that there's obviously two returns, one for the church the body of Christ and one for all uh, the rest of the world. So so I want to go through this morning and talk about five purposes for Israel from Scripture and then five purposes for the church. And I think when you see these passages, it will begin to become clear that there definitely is a distinction between the two. And anyone who suggests today that the church has replaced Israel, that the church is the new Israel, that the church and Israel are the same thing is not reading the same Bible, in my, in my view. So the first uh, reason or first purpose for Israel that Israel serves in God's plan of the ages is to witness to the unity of Yahweh, the Creator, in the midst of universal idolatry and paganism. So if you think about when Israel was called originally out of Egypt um, by Moses... At that By that time, so we're talking uh, 20, uh, say roughly 2000 BC, uh, by that time, you know, depravity had really set in. It, it didn't take long, by the way, for depravity uh, to set in. Uh, after, within 2000 years of creation, they were already doing things like uh, mankind trying to cohabit with fallen angels and just corrupt the gene pool and do you know the earth was so wicked in Genesis six. The Bible tells us that God had to destroy the whole earth by by water with a flood, the direct result, by the way, of that unholy, vile connection between demons and women. Um, so there was already a lot of depravity. But by the time you get to Abraham, roughly four thousand, let's see, roughly you know two thousand years after creation, uh, you get you know to uh, a time when there were so many pagan nations, there were false gods, there were Satan worshipers, and God called Israel in order to, for them to be a witness to the unity of Yahweh, that there is one and only one God, and that all nations need to recognize that and come to Him. Um, and so that's one of the key purposes. Now, I want you to remember that word witness, because a little bit later, when we look, we begin looking at the five purposes of the church. We're going to see that the church has a purpose in terms of being a witness. Now, it's not what you might be thinking. Certainly, we are uh, one of our purposes is to spread the gospel. But that's true in every age. There's always a group that God has to be His envoys, His representatives to spread the good news. Um, but we are also part of our purpose is to witness. To a, un- to a specific group of people, which I'll come back to. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Jews today have trouble, I, I, I'm assuming they might have trouble with that unity of Yahweh's statement because they don't believe in the Trinity. So how, can you explain that? Well, so they would They would definitely, so the question is uh, Jews today don't believe in the Trinity and so they would have problems with that statement. Well, they might deny the Trinity, but they. I don't think they would have problems with that statement if it's understood in its proper sense, because what we mean by that is the famous Shema, deuteronomy six four, that all Jews you know know from by, by heart, and that is Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So it wasn't when I say the purpose of Israel is to witness to the unity of Yahweh, it, it is speaking to the uh, uh, polytheistic, pagan views of all the ancient Near Eastern God, you know countries. Who had multiple gods, you know, uh, the, the Egyptian pantheon and the Roman pantheon, the Greek pantheon and so forth, uh, versus there's only one God. That, that's the idea. And so, so again, the, the, the uh, passages that demonstrate this would be Deuteronomy 6, 1, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And also in Isaiah, the prophet, he says, you are my witnesses to the nation of Israel, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. That's the purpose. That's one of Israel's purposes, is to demonstrate there's one true god yeah so god calls us jesus called us to go out and share the good news the jews were not called to do that yeah no they were and do they so the question is were jews also called to spread the good news absolutely so in every age let's go back here to this uh, chart god's plan of the ages in every age god has his people group his envoys let's call them that are designated to share the good news about god in say noah's day noah was the righteous one and he was declaring there's a god he's going to judge get right with god all of that um abraham and his uh, lineage his you know abraham isaac jacob the patriarchs Obviously, Moses was the designated speaker for Israel. Then it became, and during the uh, law, during the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel. So they're called today. It's the church in the kingdom. It's going to be Christ Himself, because everyone will know about Him from the least to the greatest. The Bible tells us. What about in the tribulation? Who's God's? Who who are God's envoys then to share the good news? But specifically, one hundred forty-four thousand exactly. So. So absolutely, the Jews. That, that's why I don't. I don't really list that. I don't think anyway as a specific, uh, you know, task because it's not unique uh, to them. Every group that is God's people, whatever that may be in a given age, is des- designated to share the good news about God. But Israel's purpose was even more unique. It was to demonstrate that there is only one God. That that He is is you know, unique among all the gods, I am God alone, and they were to to do that. Now, we know that they went, uh, after they came out of Egypt, they, you know, had good times and bad times. They had obedient times and disobedient times, and there were times when they were shining, uh, you know, as a witness to to the Lord, to Yahweh, but there were times when they were capitulating to the false nations and the pagan religions and Uh, They were interacting with them and intermarrying with them and not being distinct, Uh, but that was their purpose. Secondly, they were to be an example to the nations of the benefits of serving this creator. Not just witness and declare there's one God, but watch, see what happens when you serve him. And uh, so, for example, Deuteronomy 33, there was no one, there is no one like the God of Jeshua. Jeshua is just a Uh, kind of a pet name for God it literally means uh, upright one or righteous nation it's only used I think five or six times but it's just a metonym for Israel there is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to help you and in his excellency on the clouds the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms he will thrust out the enemy before you and will destroy he goes on then Israel shall dwell in safety the fountain of Jacob alone, in the land of grain and new wine, his heavens shall also drop dew. Happy are you, O Israel! Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty? The, your enemies shall submit to you, and you shall tread down their high places. So, if Israel's doing its job, other nations are going to see, wow, they're really blessed. You know, they've really got it good. Well, we want to find out more. You know. And so you see parallels, back to Ken's uh, comment, obviously between Israel and the church because we too in this present age are supposed to be shining like lights in this perverse generation, Paul tells us. We're supposed to cause people to look, turn their heads and say, oh, wow, look at those Christians. They're, man, they've got it good. You know, they're happy, they're joyful, they're content, they're not fearful, they're getting along, they're in unity. They're some of the greatest people I've seen. Now, does that describe the church at large today? Not really, but that's all part of Satan's deceptive plan in this age in which Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age. The whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. So we see you know, the ideals here and the purposes here, but we don't always see God's people living up to those purposes. And it won't be that way until Christ himself comes back and takes the throne and rules in perfect peace and justice and righteousness. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying, right? So that's another purpose of Israel. A third one, and I love this one, what one of the, what, why does Israel exist? Well, one of the reasons is to receive and record God's revelation, also known as what? The Bible. I mean, think about the writers of Scripture. Almost all were Jews. In fact, the Bible tells us that that's one of their purposes. If you go back to Deuteronomy 4, Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there? that has God so near to it, as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon Him. Now listen, and what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all the law, which I set before you this day. At the time in the wilderness wanderings, which is when Moses wrote Deuteronomy, the law was what they had. That was the Bible. Obviously over time, God revealed more to mankind, and we now have the complete revelation of God. But Paul later makes it very clear when he says, what advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them, the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. So God used the nation of Israel to transmit to us the word of God. Remember, even the New Testament, the entire New Testament was written by 95 AD. Uh, It was all written during the church age, but it was written... Telling accounts of of the transition between Israel moving into uh, the Church Age as God's focus, so that's another powerful purpose for Israel. Obviously, the purpose for Israel is to produce a Savior. You know, Jesus Christ, as Matthew makes clear, comes from the lineage of David. Uh, He's the ultimate seed of Abraham, the father of Israel. Galatians uh, tells us, but we can go all the way back to Genesis three fifteen. uh, what we call the evangelium, the first reference to the gospel in all of scripture. When God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, capital S, referring to Christ. He shall bruise your head. The seed of the woman, capital S, Christ, is going to crush Satan and someday he will. He's already defeated him at the cross but uh, Satan is still writhing in anguish and writhing in pain and uh, someday all will be quiet when he's cast into the everlasting fire that's prepared for him. Uh, but uh, so that's the beginning of this p- promise to produce a savior. Then you go to the Abrahamic promise that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, how? How did? How does Abraham bless you? Through Christ. <laughs> because Christ is the seed of Abraham. And ultimately, when Christ comes back and takes the throne, everyone on earth will experience the full blessings of the promises of God uh, to Abraham. Uh, God reiterates this same promise, this unconditional promise that we talked about a couple of weeks ago in Genesis 22. The occasion here, of course, is the sacrifice of Isaac. Remember? And God provides the ram. And, uh, and then God, after that experience, says to Abraham, once again, just reaffirming it, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, right? And uh, then we can go to the prophets. Isaiah says, the virgin will conceive and bear a child. And that's exactly what happened. He goes on to say, unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Uh, one of the purposes of Israel is to produce the Savior. Paul, in a doctrinal sense, explains it this way at the very beginning of his magnum opus, the book of Romans, a great doctrinal treatise. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. What, what did the prophets say? Concerning the his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. So the Jews produced the Savior. Uh, and then finally to be center stage in a global kingdom of peace. That's the point that God is not through with Israel yet because they haven't completed their purpose. Uh, Anybody who thinks that God has changed his mind uh, about his promises doesn't understand the unconditional nature of God's covenant. It was not an if then, it was an I will. And when you see passages that talk about God doing something in response to Israel's obedience, that has to do with the timing of it, not the reality or the certainty of it. God's promise is going to come true. It's not conditional. Um, And so the ultimate fulfillment uh, of God's promises and the ultimate purpose for Israel someday will not be complete until Israel is center stage in the kingdom. Go back to Isaiah 9. We read verse 6, but verse 7 goes on to tell us, "...of the increase of His government..." talking about the child who will be born of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this Uh, Israel is going to be the uh, home base for the global kingdom remember we've talked a lot about the Antichrist home base and uh, by the way I'm going to I'm so excited about the the new book. I got the proof cover this weekend and the proof copy I should get uh, from the publisher this early this week. And then uh, we're premiering it uh, on March 21st on David Fiorazzo's Standard for the Truth Radio. But I'll have copies for people here at Plum Creek before then, Lord willing, unless there's problems with the proof. But everything looks great. The digital copy came out great, but it's called Spirit of the Antichrist. And in that book, I talk about how the future Antichrist is going to reign in global tyranny from Babylon. Remember? We've talked about that in here. That's going to be the seat of his power geographically. He's also going to have other religious centers, uh, possibly Rome and uh, economic centers, possibly New York City if, if the United States is still around at that time. Uh, but, uh, but Christ, by contrast, is going to reign From Israel, from Jerusalem, from Mount Zion and the rebuilt temple. So one of the purposes for Israel is to be center stage in that coming kingdom. A king shall reign and prosper, Jeremiah said, and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be delivered. Remember saved there just means delivered. And Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our Righteousness. Zechariah says, The Lord shall be king over the whole earth in that day. It shall be the Lord is one. So I believe that the ultimate uh, fulfillment of Christ's coming kingdom is going to be the ultimate manifestation of the Shema that we talked about in Deuteronomy 6. Israel, in theory, looking at it from a human perspective, could have crossed the Jordan into Canaan and demonstrated once and for all right then that the Lord our God is one. But they didn't because they had uh, imperfect kings on the throne eventually, and judges, and priests, and prophets, and so forth. But when the king of kings takes the throne, then the Shema will have its fullest embodiment. Then everybody on earth will know there's one God. Uh, And of course, Revelation 11 is a precursor uh, to the return of Christ, one of these interludes that uh, we see in the book of Revelation. We read in the context here of the uh, trumpets, uh, and there, uh, the kingdoms of this world, I love this, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So that's the ultimate purpose of Israel. They have not fulfilled that purpose yet. There is a future for national Israel. But as you look at these five purposes on the screen, you know, to witness to the unity of Yahweh the Creator in the midst of universal idolatry and paganism, to be an example to the nations of the benefits of serving the Creator, to receive and record God's revelation, uh, to produce the Savior for the whole world. That's why the passage we read last week in our uh, study through the Book of Acts in the ten o'clock hour, we spent we kind of camped out in John four that great interaction between Jesus and the woman at the well. And what did Jesus tell her? Salvation is of the Jews. What does that mean? It doesn't mean you have to become a Jew to be saved, but it just means that the Savior is a Jew. And then number five, to be center stage in the global kingdom of peace. Now contrast that with the church. You and I today are part of the church. I've demonstrated previously how the uh, you can prove from Scripture that the church began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Um, if you remember Peter in Acts chapter 11 when he's retelling the story of cornelius and how cornelius and his family got saved gentiles in acts chapter 10 in acts 11 peter is retelling that story and explaining it and he says the holy spirit came upon them cornelius and his family the same way he came upon us at the beginning the beginning of what well if you compare scripture with scripture and trace the things that happened. We know that he's talking about the beginning of the church because that's when the Holy Spirit came. So so there are clearly some purposes for the church. Uh, The first one that a lot of people don't think about, I've talked about it before, but it's to call out a people for his name. To call out a people for his name. We get this from the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the gentiles to take out of them a people for his name and then as you uh, recall earlier on in the progress of the church as the church is expanding and growing we find out that at antioch here that's in syria uh, the disciples were first called christians so what's unique about the church and one of our purposes is that we bear the name of christ I mean, the, the uh, Jewish people in the nation of Israel were not called Yahweites, right? They were called Jews or Israelites. We're called Christians. See, that's unique. We're not uh, tied to a geographic region like Israel, the Holy Land, uh, or country. Or we're, we're we transcend geographic boundaries. And in the uh, worship hour, uh, unfortunately, this this won't be on the uh, uh, live stream because I'm going to do this during the prayer time. But I'm going to give a couple of updates about our brothers and sisters in Christ from Ukraine. Um, I've got a couple of direct connections there, and got some emails that are just uh, heart wrenching. We have been asked as a church to pray for them, and so we can do that because we all bear the name of Christ. We're all Christians. And one of the purposes of the church is to call out a people for His name. Secondly, one of the purposes of the church is to showcase the exceeding riches of God's grace and mercy. To showcase the exceeding riches of God's grace and mercy. One of the unique things about the church is that we look back upon the pivotal event of all human history, the atoning work of Christ at the cross. Israel looked forward to that. It had not happened in time, but of course, God is timeless. God eternally exists outside of time, space, and matter. So as has often been pointed out, God exists in the eternal now, right? And so from God's perspective, the atoning work was already accomplished, but Israel had to view that through the shadow of earthly things, the, the sacrifices, the, the rituals, the traditions, things like the, uh, the occasion of Abraham and Isaac. And uh, you can go all the way back to uh, the garden where when Adam and Eve first sinned and God had to shed innocent blood to co- make a covering for them with the animals, right? The first time that had happened. So certainly grace, God's free gift of forgiveness was not something new at the church age. It's been around since sin began. It was by grace that God didn't strike Adam and Eve dead instantly, but gave them the opportunity by faith to be redeemed. Uh, but what we see in the church age is grace in high definition. Uh, we see Paul describing it this way in, in his great letter where he describes God's dispensational plan. Uh, he says, that in the ages to come, talking about the present age, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Another verse that just came to my mind, I put all these down yesterday as I was thinking through this, and just, I had planned to just originally just put the verse references, but I thought I want to read each of these and really make it clear. But another one that I probably should have put in here is Hebrews uh, 1. If I can find Hebrews. You know, you get out of practice when you don't use a print Bible. Uh, and You use, do everything on your computer. Uh, but in Hebrews, that is in the New Testament, right? <laughs> Hebrews chapter... Somewhere around there, yeah. Here we go. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, the writer, we don't know who for sure. Probably Paul, but we can't be dogmatic about that. But he begins, under the inspiration of the Spirit, by saying, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days, there's that phrase last days I talked about a moment ago, that's the church age, in these last days spoken us, spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become so much better than the angels as he has by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they so there you see the writer of Hebrews talking about the superiority of Christ as the supreme example of God and his grace in dying for our sins and purging our sins so um you know that's the reason the gospel is so powerful, is that it it presents a good news message that your sin debt has been paid. Um, that message was was there in Old Testament times prior to the church age, but it took a little more clarifying and explanation. And you know, uh, just read the book of Leviticus, and it's not like it's as crystal clear, right? It's the reason when we sit down to share the gospel with someone today, we don't say, let me start with the book of Leviticus, right? I mean, you might if you're dealing with a Jew who's unsaved. But what we see in the present age is that uh, the, the, uh, the God is showcasing His incredible grace and mercy like never before. We, we see it. We talked about it a few weeks ago when I gave that description of what Christ went through on our behalf. I mean, that's grace. That should have been you and me on that cross, right? But it was Christ. But then number three, uh, and this is what really um, I think frustrates our friends that are uh, replacement uh, theologians who have a wrong view of Scripture and they think the church is the end-all, be-all and that we are the consummate group in God's plan and that we're way better than Israel and that we've replaced Israel and it's all about us. This is it, kingdom now theology. We are the kingdom, right? Right? Um, well they get frustrated when I point this out but really one of the purposes of the church is just to get Israel's attention I mean we're like the other woman really I mean if you really want to be crass about it we we, we are just here to get Israel's attention Paul tells us that plainly in Romans 11 in, in Romans 9 through 11 remember he's talking about Israel and where Israel fits in God's plan and has God cast Israel aside and he overwhelmingly says no now, of course, our Calvinist uh, friends, um, and they are friends, I mean, they're wrong, but uh, they're our friends. I mean, it's like having a friend who's a, you know, a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, you know, you can have a friend, they're just wrong, they should be Cowboys fans, right? But uh, our Calvinist friends, they take Romans 9 through 11, as all about individual salvation and all about individual election, and they see everything through the lens of God electing some to heaven and some to hell, and you don't have a choice in the matter. You hope you better hope you're elect, right? Right. Um, well, that's not what Romans 9 through 11 is about. It's about national Israel and God's plan for national Israel. And he says at the toward the end of this section in chapter 11, have they that is Israel stumbled that they should fall? The idea is has Israel's rejection of the Messiah led to their utter failure and rejection? Are they done? And Paul says, "Certainly not." Now, watch this. But through their fall, and let's read this differently than the grammar, the way it is in Greek. But through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. That's what he's saying. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now let's just stop there for a second. But verse 12, which is the next thing, on the next sentence on the screen, is, is really powerful too. But let me just elaborate for a second. Through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles, which provokes Israel to jealousy. In other words, Israel, as we know just from reading the Gospels, by the time of the first century, the Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees were all very high and mighty and self-righteous and pious. They looked down at the, the lower echelons of society. They, they uh, were very highly critical of the, you know, the tax collectors and the harlots, which, of course, is precisely the group Jesus spent a bunch of time with because Jesus was saying it's not the sick that need the doctor, it's the you know, it's not the well that need the doctor, it's the sick, right? And so Jesus would 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 constantly say, you know, you don't think you you have need of repentance, you don't think you have anything to change your mind about, you think you've got it all figured out. Well, let me show you. It's about being recognizing your unworthiness and coming to me in faith. And that's that's the whole message in a nutshell of Jesus earthly ministry. It's it's not about what you do. It's not your own self-righteous piety. It's coming to Christ, who alone can give you His righteousness, imputed righteousness, by faith. Um, so, so what? G- what Paul is saying here is that once the Jews began to see, wow, boy, grace covers all. Anybody can be saved. You mean that woman by the well? She can be saved. You mean that tax collector? He can be saved. You mean anybody who simply comes? in childlike faith and says I'm a sinner who needs a savior and I'm trusting in Jesus and him alone to save me can be saved yeah absolutely and Israel the next time around when Christ comes back instead of rejecting him and feeling threatened by him and crowning him with thorns they're going to welcome him they're going to say oh boy I remember what the church got I remember the blessings of the church and I, I want some of that Notice, and, this, and I've just sort of skipped ahead of here because this is essentially what he just, what I just said is what he says in verse twelve. If their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, just basically kind of a synonymous parallelism there, just repeating the same thing. If their fall means riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Once Israel receives her king then we're going to step right into the global kingdom where everyone on earth will see Christ, see his people, the church reigning with Christ, Israel representing the, the, the home base for the kingdom, and all in unity and all pointing the way uh, to God. So Romans 11, 11, 12 is a powerful statement about one of our purposes today. And I, I just want to encourage you to ask yourself, uh, is the way you're living your Christian life today as part of the church, if you were being watched by an unbelieving Jew, is it getting their attention? Is it making them wonder, oh boy, I want that. You know? See, the church is a foretaste of what life will be like in the kingdom. Um, I don't remember when it, well, it was probably a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the covenant program of God, but I talked about how the new covenant is not in place today because the description of the new covenant does not fit at all with the biblical description of today in fact they're contradictory new covenant says when the new covenant's inaugurated nobody will need to teach his neighbor everybody will know about jesus the church age says go into all the world and teach your neighbor about jesus right and the new covenant says when the new covenant's inaugurated everyone's going to do what's righteous Clearly today in the church age, we see the flesh lusting against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, and we do not do the things that we wish. Romans 7, Galatians 5, and others. So, uh, but when I said that, so I had someone come up to me, I can't remember who, but asked, you know, that, that's new to me, I don't understand. I thought we're living in the new covenant age. No, we're not living in the new covenant age. Um, we're living in a for, in an age that is a foretaste. So the things that will, will happen in fullness in the kingdom are happening... In partial form today, so we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't mean that we always do what's right because we still have the old man, the old nature, right? Uh, we uh, we have uh, you know a universal knowledge within the church that transcends geography and boundaries and nation states, as we talked about, but it's not global. It's not every last person. On earth. So there's a today's a foretaste. The church is a foretaste of what life will be like in the kingdom and, and we are intended to get Israel's attention yeah the Old Testament Jews they were deemed righteous by their absolutely the Old Testament Jews I'm just repeating what you said were deemed righteous by their faith so when they Have any Jews been saved without acknowledging Christ? Well, the way you word the question, I'd have to say no, because Christ is Messiah. It's a title. They didn't know necessarily that it would be, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter's son, you know, all the details. Uh, They didn't know, for example, that he would die on a cross necessarily. The Old Testament predicts his death, Isaiah 53. Uh, Daniel 9 says he's going to be cut off. But the details come later. Today, the specific content of what we have to believe is spelled out unequivocally in Scripture. Uh, but in Old Testament times, it was still by faith. You know, Genesis 15:6, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteous. That's how he got righteous. But they absolutely had to believe that only God could provide that Messiah, that only God could forgive their sin. That they were helpless and hopeless, in need of a savior, and they had to trust God. And I think the Genesis 22 experience of Abraham is the perfect picture of that. You know, Abraham didn't save himself; he trusted God. God will provide a lamb, he said, right? And that's where we get the compound name for God, Jehovah, Jireh, the Lord our Provider. Uh, so, salvation was always by faith, but it wasn't specifically in the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as it's very clearly spelled out for us today. Yeah. And that's true in the Old Testament, but from the moment of Christ, or Jesus' birth, going forward, have any Jews been saved that have not acknowledged Jesus as their avenue to salvation? No. Have any Jews been saved from the time of Calvary going forward who have not acknowledged Jesus as their hope, their Savior. No, absolutely not. No, that's the content of faith. Paul tells us very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15 that here's how you're saved, by believing in Jesus who died according to the Scriptures, was buried, and rose again according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. This is the gospel by which we are saved. And I've written a whole book about that 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 spends quite a bit of time uh, theologically and doctrinally proving the content of saving faith. Nobody can be saved today, Jew or Gentile alike, without acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died and rose again for their sins. Not possible. Yeah? But I understand, I think, what Gary is saying, just to elaborate, that, in other words, if a Jew was looking forward to the Messiah three years before Jesus was born, or or, or two days before, and they died, then you're saying that they would go to heaven because they had faith awaiting, Je- not Jesus, but the Messiah. But once he was born, then they would not? It, that's is that what you're asking? So that's you're, the way I'm interpreting Yeah, so the question so. is, if a Jew was um, looking forward to the Messiah, you don't get saved by looking forward to the Messiah, by the way. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the answer. But yeah, I'm going to just repeat the question. If you get, if they were looking for the Messiah, say three years before um, he came, uh, and they were s- so in, the, in your hypothetical, they were saved. Then Christ comes, died, and rose again. And afterwards, do they have to get saved again? No. Salvation always only happens at a one-time moment in time. And if they had had saving faith prior to Calvary, they're saved. They don't, you know, they don't have to get saved again, right? But if a Jew And and just simply anticipating the Messiah doesn't save you as a Jew. Trusting in God as their only hope for forgiveness, individual. So all the nation of Israel always was looking forward to the Messiah, uh, and as a nation, but they did not have individual uh, faith. That's what Paul says in Romans 10, by the way. Remember, he says, "My heart's desire is for the nation of Israel to be delivered into their kingdom and to receive her king." like they didn't the first time, right? In chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9 of Romans, he says they stumbled over the stumbling block, they crucified the Messiah, right, essentially. And so he's saying my heart's desire is for them to receive their king. But before they can be delivered into the kingdom, they must first individually believe the gospel because you know, faith leads to righteousness. The only way to be declared righteous, like Abraham, is to believe. So uh, anyone who was saved at any time in any era by faith is saved once for all from that point over the rules don't change what changes is the content of precisely what must be believed as god revealed more and in the new testament we now know unequivocally that in order to be saved a person has to believe that jesus christ the son of god died and rose again for their sins and it has to be an exclusive faith that he's the only one that can save them right it's always been an exclusive faith in god but it hasn't had the the content of the death burial and resurrection of christ So hopefully that helps uh, clarify. So we are out of time. I'm going to have to leave you hanging with two more great purposes of the church. We'll come back next week and review what we've said so far and then pick up with those last two. So let's take a break. For those live streaming, we will live stream the sermon only, and that should start roughly 1030 Mountain Time, give or take five minutes. So kind of maybe log in and stand by starting at uh, 1025, which is about 35 minutes from now. Those of you here will come back together again at 10 o'clock for our worship service.